It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Thursday, November 26, 2020. It's episode 173. On today's episode, the Code St. Luke Public Library's Stephen Tomlinson is here to talk about the history of MGM. This is part one. Look for part two soon. Here is Stephen. Hello, this is Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. And today I'm going to talk about the glorious history of the MGM musical. By MGM, I mean Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, which was the biggest of the Hollywood movie-making studios during the heyday of classic Hollywood. In hindsight, we can say that for about 15 years, from the release of The Wizard of Oz in 1939 to, say, that of The Bandwagon in 1953, and even later, under the leadership of the producer Arthur Freed, MGM made a succession of dazzling musicals of pure, joyous artifice that, perhaps in retrospect, looks like a campaign to keep people cheerful throughout the war years and as an even darker threat loomed. Several of these, particularly Singing in the Rain, has been called by different critics and fans the best movie musical ever made. And why not? They are everything great entertainment should be, with fresh, witty storytelling, wonderful casts and handsome productions. They also feature superb scores and some of the finest choreography ever devised for film. Throughout the MGM musical's run of superiority, talented artists flocked to the studio to try their hand, often making films that were more daring than the crowd-pleasing norm, or that reached for something just beyond their grasp, leaving a few astonishing sequences in their wake. Sure, many classic film fans still love non-MGMers like Bing Crosby, Betty Grable, Gordon McRae, and Doris Day, but there is no question that MGM's contract players were in a class by themselves. No other studio can compare to MGM's triple threat trio of Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, and Judy Garland, as well as Catherine Grayson, Esther Williams, June Allison, Van Johnson, Debbie Reynolds, Jane Powell, and Howard Keel. It's virtually impossible. The other studios tried and in turn fared relatively well on the whole, but with those three names, Astaire, Kelly, and Garland especially, the musical stars of other studios just could not compare. Hence MGM's catchphrase that they possessed, and I quote here, all the stars in the heavens. Of course, the pure, joyous artifice of the MGM musical could never have happened without one other phenomenon. That is the glory of the American songbook. These were years in the first half of the 20th century in which much of the world was singing the works of George and Ira Gershwin, Cole Porter, Jerome Kern, Irving Berlin, Harold Arland, Rogers and Hart, Rogers and Hammerstein, and so many others, including MGM producer Arthur Freed himself, who co-wrote the song, Singing in the Rain. And it was their work upon which the Hollywood musical in general was based. And the best of those Hollywood musicals were most often made by MGM. But let's back up a little bit and start from near the beginning. 
In the words of one scholar, the movie musical itself emerged in an era in the very late 1920s of intense cultural conflict and competition between traditional theater and cinema, between the story-driven musical and the more vaudeville-like review, and between jumped-up jazz and music hall pop. Beginning with that coming of sound, in the late 1920s, the earliest Hollywood musicals were mostly clumsy, and it would be several years before filmmakers recognized this new genre's unique artistic needs and its possibilities. But from the beginning, audiences embraced screen musicals with tremendous enthusiasm. Warner Brothers' The Jazz Singer in 1927, was the first full-length feature to include recorded song and dialogue. With Al Jolson heading the cast, the world's greatest entertainer, remember, as he was routinely advertised, Warners had decided to insert a few songs. I mean, what would be the point of paying for Jolson if audiences couldn't hear him sing, right? And so they did. Audiences roared for these musical scenes. In movies, they would never be the same afterwards. But it, it really took a long time for the studios to get a grasp on this new medium of sound. And MGM went through the same process of trial and error with musicals as nearly every other Hollywood studio. And it would take them, on the whole, several years to truly develop its reputation as a place that nurtured and properly showcased talented performers, choreographers, and directors. For MGM, the musical phenomenon really began with the Broadway Melody, a 1929 backstage romance released while MGM was still adjusting to the sound era, which the studio had embraced later than its rivals. Most early sound films were melodramas, but in the summer of 1929, the manager of New York's Capitol Theater told MGM production chief Irving Thalberg that a decent, all-sound, romantic comedy would guarantee sell-out business. Thalberg promised to make just such a film, and he quickly assembled a production team, shooting the film in just 28 days, and had it ready for release that October. Just in time for the Great Depression. 28 days. That, that is an unthinkably quick accomplishment today. But not at all that unusual at a producer-driven studio like MGM back in this period. You know, the backstage showbiz plot um, of the Broadway melody centered on two sisters, played by Anita Page and Bessie Love, battling over their shared passion for a charming song and dance man played by Charles King. The film turned out so well that MGM passed over the Capitol and opened the Broadway Melody across Times Square at the company's own Astor Theater. Advertised as the first all-talking, all-singing, all-dancing feature, it became the first sound film to win the Academy Award for Best Picture, just about three years after the Oscars were introduced, in fact. The score, by Herb Brown and Arthur Freed, included seven songs, including the title tune, And You Were Meant For Me. Audiences and critics were both delighted, and Thalberg was credited with bringing MGM the first in what would become a long line 
of musical triumphs. Not that there weren't a few disasters along the way. But in the years to come, the backstage story introduced by the Broadway melody, that would become a common framing device for movie musicals, allowing studios to convert the plot-light review style, you know, with songs chosen more for their catchiness than their narrative relevance, into something with more of a stronger storyline. The Broadway melody also spawned a series of sequels among the first in Hollywood history, really, at least the first very popular series of sequels, all on a variation of the title of the Broadway Melody, hence the Broadway Melody of 1936, the Broadway Melody of 1938, the Broadway Melody of 1940. Well, I think you get the idea. Unfortunately, time has not been kind to these movies. In fact, today, audiences might find it difficult to sit through them and stay awake. However, most viewers in 1929 considered the Broadway Melody to be a technical miracle with content and sound technology superior to every talkie that had come before. Although whatever its flaws, as I said, the Broadway melody made a lot of money at the box office, and its success widened the path for the musical genre as a whole. Now, generally, screen musicals inherently required a substantial investment of time, talent, and money. So keeping the new genre alive, that proved a tricky proposition during the economic crash of the early 1930s, the worst years of the Great Depression. But a time also when audiences most wanted to escape the reality of their own lives. And what better way to do so than through the sheer fantasy of the movie musical? And so for at least the duration of that decade, the musical became for Hollywood a sort of talisman of success. And so after the commercial success of the Broadway melody, the world saw a glut of musical spectacles, each at first bigger and more clunky, at least to our eyes today, than the last one. In fact, every major studio, including Paramount, Warners, and RKO, filmed at least one lavish musical review. But most to disastrous effect. The exception to this rule are the still wonderful musicals made by Busby Berkeley at Warner Brothers with such films as 42nd Street in 1933, Footlight Parade, and others. Berkeley was the first director to clearly understand that effective screen choreography involved the placement and movement of dancers and the camera. In tandem, something that MGM would later take to heart. But before then, the best of the bunch for MGM was probably its Hollywood review of 1929, which mixed, as one critic has noted, weak production numbers with such oddities as Joan Crawford performing at Charleston, and silent stars Norma Shearer and John Gilbert offering a rather amateurish, jived-up balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet. But inspired by Berkeley's success at Warner Brothers, MGM production chief Irving Thalberg decided in 1934 to film a lavish sound version of The Merry Widow. Sparing no expense, he hired the great Ernst Lubitsch to direct the already established screen team of Moore Chevalier and Jeanette MacDonald. Off screen, the two stars disliked each other, but none of that showed on screen. 
Such is, the, such is movie magic, right? And with a heavily revised plot and several new characters, the production of The Merry Widow amounted to a radical rethinking of Franz Lahar's beloved staged operetta about a royal Lothario who woos a rich woman in order to keep his kingdom solvent. Filled with the sophisticated, sexy, visual wit that was Lubitsch's cinematic trademark, Thalberg made sure it was carefully calibrated to appease the dreaded production code, which was highly circumspect morally about what could be said, shown, and suggested on screen. New lyrics by no less than Lorenz Hart certainly helped, and the film opened to critical raves. A very European movie in style and attitude, The Merry Widow doesn't have the knock-em-dead quality of the great MGM productions to come, but clearly filmmakers like Vincent Minnelli, Stanley Donen, and Gene Kelly kept Lubitsch in mind when they made their great musicals of the 1950s. In 1936, MGM produced its second musical to win the Best Picture Oscar. Though the great Ziegfeld perhaps hasn't aged as well as the wittier and much shorter The Merry Widow. At close to three hours, The Great Ziegfeld is a biographical musical about the flamboyant and charming Broadway impresario Florenz Ziegfeld Jr., played by William Powell, that, that truly wonderful actor. But in retrospect, I think The Great Ziegfeld is really only great in its um, tediousness, lavishness, length, and budget. In fact, MGM made it for $2 million, an enormous sum back then. And in fact, making The Great, Zieg the Great Ziegfeld the, the, the biggest budgeted film ever up to that time. But it, it, it truly does go overboard in hero-worshipping Ziegfeld, however much a fan I am of the actor who played him, William Powell. I think it's fair to say that the film's highlight is its glossy production of the Irving Berlin tune, A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody. That number, which is said to have cost over $200,000 all, all on its own, ran for some 15 minutes uh, altogether. Of greater significance today is that after head of production Irving Thalberg's death from pneumonia that same year, in 1936, studio boss Louis B. Mayer decided to refocus MGM's energies on musicals and to do so set up a dedicated unit to producing them. Since MGM placed creative control in the hands of its producers, this unit would be run by Arthur Freed, an in-house songwriter at MGM, and the man who first saw the blockbuster potential of The Wizard of Oz. You know, as a small child, Judy Garland started in a vaudeville singing act with her singer, sisters. Excuse me, Her vibrant voice and tangible vulnerability, which has been well documented in recent years, landed her an MGM contract at that age of 13. It's hard to believe today. By all accounts, studio chief Louis B. Mayer himself took a special interest in, in Judy, working behind the scenes to turn her into a star by sheer force of his will, and even if he felt he had to, to wreck her self-esteem to do it. Judy had finally 
broken through with a public singing a cooing love song to a photo of Clark Gable in Broadway Melody of 1938, which was followed by an inspired pairing with Mickey Rooney in a string of, you know, hey kids, let's put on a show style musicals, as well as the Handy Artie films, which were enormously popular. But of course, the apotheosis of Julie Garland's teenage oeuvre is 1939's The Wizard of Oz. You know, when she as Dorothy sang Over the Rainbow, there was no question that the song meant something. She was behaving or acting like a character in a drama. The song was not just one more moment, as in earlier musicals where the characters take a deep breath and fall into a melody that decorates a sketchy plot. No, not at all. Here in The Wizard of Oz, Over the Rainbow and her singing of it felt just so emotionally deep and very, very real, like a lived experience. And the movie itself, in that year of 1939, perhaps the greatest in all of Hollywood history, was an event that changed cinema forever, with MGM embracing color and a bold theatrical quality to its production design. But with The Wizard of Oz, the Hollywood musical, it truly came into its own, as a world unto itself, that only film could truly create. As I said, MGM placed creative control on the hands of its producers, all of whom had to answer to Louis B. Mayer. Now, thanks to this centralized system, Mayer would carefully vary the studio's output, balancing expensive prestige projects with lower-cost fare. For example, dancer Eleanor Powell was first showcased in the relatively inexpensive Born to Dance in 1936, followed by more ambitious projects like Rosalie in 1937, as well as three profitable installments of the Broadway Melody series, of which I've already spoken. She was a professional tapper, taught by vaudeville greats and meticulous in her dancing. No one can match her, although perhaps Ann Miller came pretty close. Powell's natural charm and sensational tap technique made her limitations as a singer and actress virtually irrelevant. Her Begin the Beguine with Fred Astaire in Broadway Melody of 1940 is considered by many to be the best tap duet Hollywood ever filmed. I mean, it takes your breath away. And it was done in only one take, but after three weeks of rehearsals. So why would they do it in only one take? To provide for spontaneity, of course. You know, it said that Eleanor Powell was the only dance partner who ever intimidated Fred Astaire, and that he was nervous about dancing with her in this movie because she was the only one who could tap as well, or even better than he could. Now, I'm not sure he was being quite sincere when he said this, but he did say that he once came onto the set and watched her warming up and almost quit dancing because she was so good. In any case, it was the only time they danced together on film. Eleanor Powell is arguably more technically proficient than Astaire in Broadway Melody of 1940, at least as a tap dancer, but he is, I think, more free and spontaneous in his movement, whereas she really looks a lot more rehearsed. But Powell is definitely quicker. Now, that could be her age, or it could just be that the elegance of his movement made him slightly slower. 
I think it is this combination of spontaneity and elegance, though, that made Astaire one of Hollywood's very greatest stars. And in a way, he dances not just with his feet, but his entire body, of course. You know, his his face and his hands as exquisitely as any other part of him, really, if that doesn't sound too strange. Without question, Fred Astaire was one of the greatest and most influential dancers in the history of movie musicals. And in addition to Broadway Melody of 1940 with Eleanor Powell, he starred in such MGM classics as Easter Parade in 1948 with Judy Garland. He did a reunion with Ginger Rogers in the Barclays of Broadway in 1949. Remember, of course, that the two of them had uh, starred in a large number of great musicals in the 1930s for RKO. Um, But for MGM, he also made, uh, without Ginger Rogers, such films as uh, Three Little Words from 1959, Royal Wedding from 1951 with Jane Powell. Uh, the Bandwagon, certainly one of my very favorite musicals with uh, Sid Charisse from 1953. And Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn from 1957. But um, Astaire's virtuoso dancing and elegant singing voice, it, it certainly made him one of the most acclaimed performers of all time. And it is no accident that America's greatest popular composers wrote some of their most memorable songs for him. Astaire, I think he is truly the embodiment of uh, a seemingly effortless sophistication. I mean, of, of course, <laughs> you put a lot of work into that, uh, that effortlessness or that appearance of, of being so effortless. And he was, without exaggeration one of the definitive icons of the whole of the 20th century. Like every other major studio and every facet of American life at the time, MGM didn't have the most exemplary record on minority hiring. But it was the first studio to put a black musical performer under contract. Lena Horne, a veteran of Harlem's Cotton Club, MGM used Horn sparingly, usually only, usually only in cameo roles, though she did play a big part in 1943's Cabot in the Sky, which was Vincent Minnelli's director, directorial debut, by the way, and, and that rare studio film with an all-black cast. You know, it's a really good movie, too, with Eddie Rochester Anderson playing a hopeless sinner who tries to reform his ways for his wife, Ethel Waters, but is otherwise tempted by drink, gambling, and the wiles of the lovely Lena Horne. Cabin in the Sky featured Waters and Anderson's duet of the title song. In addition to her moving performance of the Oscar-nominated Best Original Tune, Happiness is a Thing Called Joe, as well as her truly joyful taking a chance on love. Lena Horne herself performed the uh, sexy Honey in the Honeycomb, but perhaps the musical highlight of the film features John W. Sublett, a.k.a. Bubbles, who was Fred Astaire's teacher in 1920, and also a major influence on Michael Jackson's much later dancing. In this sequence, he sings a song called Shine, and it's truly wonderful, with Duke Ellington 
and the Hal Johnson Choir helping out. You know, I think it's fair to say that both Judy Garland and Bing Crosby were the top musical film stars of the 1940s. Now, I just want to return to Judy Garland for a few minutes. Judy appeared in 16 MGM musicals in total, as well as 14 additional feature movies during the 1940s, most produced by Arthur Freed. I mean, no other musical screen star ever had such an exhausting track record, which did not, of course, do wonders for her mental health. Garland later insisted that MGM got the most out of her by encouraging studio doctors to prescribe a dangerous array of pills to crank her up by day and force her to sleep at night. But as far as I know, no other performer ever blamed MGM for encouraging chemical dependency. Not to say that, it, that this claim isn't true. Not at all, in fact. I, I would tend to, to believe her, of course. I, I think, in fact, I think the evidence certainly supports that. Uh, and apparently it was Garland's controlling mother who, who did get her started on pills, however. And while the studio may have abetted the abuse, it also encouraged and supported Garland through several attempts at re- rehabilitation that, that unfortunately always fell apart due to her crushing workload. Now, between the pressures and the pills, the incredibly gifted Judy was often a physical and nervous wreck, which sometimes caused her movies to go over budget and further intention with the powers that be at MGM as a result. Almost from the start, though, MGM had teamed her with Mickey Rooney for an incredibly popular series of Let's Put On a Show musicals, which I, I, I barely mentioned earlier, including Babes in Arms in 1939, Strike Up the Band in 1940, and Girl Crazy in 1943. I think the delicacy and vulnerability on display in her singing of the Gershwin number, but not for me, is something to behold. Heartrending, really. I mean, when anyone asks what made Judy Garland so special, you just need to point to a few scenes among her many films. But one in particular is this number, her singing of But Not For Me from Girl Crazy in 1943. It's a great example of her exquisite musical sensibility. Even if arguably the song is a little bit too sophisticated and a little bit too world-weary for someone so young and at this stage in her career. However wonderful Girl Crazy is, I think uh, Judy Garland's best film at MGM came the next year as she was transitioning into more adult roles. In 1944's Meet Me in St. Louis, directed by Garland's soon-to-be husband, Vincent Minnelli, she plays the second-oldest daughter of a middle-class Missouri family that is simultaneously looking forward to the 1904 World's Fair and dreading their father's plan to move the Klan to New York City. 
But whereas, it's very, very interesting. But whereas in The Wizard of Oz, Judy Garland had sung Somewhere Over the Rainbow, I mean, you know, pining for a better day that, that the singer is optimistic that she will one day see. In Mimi in St. Louis, or St. Louis, <laughs> however, Judy sings, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And it's, it's just so melancholy, heartbreaking, really, in that the singer, in the, her performance of the song, is pretending that everything's going to be okay when she isn't at all sure that it will be. That's, that's, the, that's the more mature Judy Garland making its first truly great on-screen appearance, I think. And it may well be her single greatest moment in the movies. Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. It is a song <laughs> that has been ruined by a thousand smug, easy-listening versions. But as sung by Judy in the film Meet Me in St. Louis, to her distraught little sister, played by Margaret O'Brien, you know, trying to console her for the fact that they are leaving the place they both truly love, is almost unbearably sad. <laughs> Forgive me. I mean, her, her lustrous voice is not saying... You know, isn't it wonderful that, that it's Christmas? Hooray, let's celebrate. Rather, in her exquisite reading of the song, she is, in effect, saying, yes, things are miserable now, but one day, one day, they might not be. And that, that had to be a truly powerful message in 1944. You know, when families were separated, Men and women were fighting overseas. But it, it's still, that, 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 that exquisite rendering, it's still quite re resonant today. Someday soon, we will all be together, if the fates allow. Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. It just makes me want to cry, even thinking about it. In a good way, of course. Only 21 years old and already a huge star, Judy Garland, in Meet Me in St. Louis. It's St. Louis. It's one of the most touching and dramatic scenes in Hollywood, in any Hollywood musical. I mean, no one could wring tears from a willing audience like Judy Garland. She acted best when she sang, really. When you think about it, she acted best when she sang. And it's all here in Meet Me in St. Louis. And you know, she said it was her favorite role. Judy Garland was definitely MGM's top musical star in the 1940s, appearing also in For Me and My Gal from 1942, which introduced the hit title tune with the then-newcomer Gene Kelly. She also made The Harvey Girls in 1946, in which she sang on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe, as well as Easter Parade with Fred Astaire in 1948 among many other hit films. As I said, ruthlessly overworked, 
Garland's physical and emotional health became unreliable, and her sometimes temperamental behavior forced many projects to go over budget. When she suffered a total collapse during the filming of Annie Get Your Gun in 1950, MGM dropped her contract. She would later make other musicals, but not for MGM, and rarely in the same league as her best work for that studio. But the best of these was, without question, A Star is Born, made in 1954, but for Warner Brothers, not for MGM. As I said, Meet Me in St. Louis was directed by Judy Garland's future husband, Vincent Minnelli. In fact, they fell in love while working on the movie. And frankly, (laughs) audiences uh, who otherwise weren't already so inclined also definitely fell in love with Judy Garland uh, in watching Meet Me in St. Louis. But Vincent Minnelli, he, he was an MGM contract director all his career who's whose many other musicals include The Pirate, again with Garland, though they were divorced by then in 1948. Um, he also made An American in Paris, uh, quite, um, quite memorably, which uh, was another MGM Best Picture Musical Oscar winner, uh, but this time in 1951. Uh, Minnelli also made um, other great MGM musicals, such as The Bandwagon in 1953, as well as Brigadoon and Gigi later in that uh, same decade. And it was Arthur Freed who brought him to MGM, and certainly no other director, I think it's fair to say, can be more closely associated with the MGM musical style at its very best than Vincent Minnelli. I mean, his films, in their essence, exhibit a stunning overall sense of visual style marked by an extraordinary use of color, as well as many sweeping crane shots. Their daughter, of course, Liza Minnelli, was born in 1946, and the often troubled marriage ended um, ended, uh, almost five years later. Vincent Minnelli would himself marry three more times while Judy Garland herself was married five times in total. You know, I think I'm going to leave it here for now and call it a wrap for part one of my brief history of the MGM musical. I hope you've enjoyed this and will join me next time for more movie talk. You've been listening to Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All right, all the best. Happy viewing. And bye-bye for now. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for listening today. My name is Daryl Levine. We launched this uh, podcast and uh, telephone broadcasting service at the end of March 2020. Of course, we had uh, closed our doors at that point. Uh, People could not come anymore to the library to uh, listen to interesting talks and so on. And this was a way of getting the content to you. Uh, One of the things that we did was 
set up a telephone number that people could call into every day at 2 p.m. so they could listen to this if they either didn't have a computer or maybe they weren't comfortable using a computer. Uh, And of course, we also later distributed this show through the regular podcast channels that people uh, who listen to podcasts are familiar with. And maybe that's how you're listening to us today. So thanks for listening. Be well, stay safe, and we'll see you soon.